Our passage this morning is in the book of Mark. Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Then he, being Jesus, went home, and the crowds gathered again, so that he and his disciples could not even eat. And when his family heard about it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now a crowd was sitting round him, and they said to him, Your mother and brother are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those seated about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good. Hello. My name is Matt, and I am also one of the pastors, and part of my role and responsibility is doing a lot of this, so hopefully you can get used to that. A couple of announcements uh, as we get started is uh, on your seats, at least every other seat, there was a little card. It says seven days of prayer and fasting for our city. Uh, this is an initiative that I started up in our city, believing that what it would look like for the believers of the city to come together and to begin to pray that God would do something crazy in this city. We want to see every church in this city overflowing with people coming to know Jesus, not just church of the city. And so what would that actually, and what would that really look like? And so seven is an initiative initiative where there's a number of gatherings that happen throughout the week on evening uh, days, and we're simply gathering the believers together of the city to pray to God about specific things. Uh, We are encouraging our missional communities that if there is a gathering happening on the evening that you typically get together for dinner, you cancel your dinner and you all go to seven and pray together with other believers. There'll be some music, and there'll be some people that are leading you in prayer as we pray to God that he would do something crazy in our city. At the heart of every revival is prayer. And so we believe that if we want to see God do something crazy in this generation, and at this time, that it's going to begin with us getting on our knees and praying. That's one. Number two is we have somebody new with us today. We have a lot of new people, but we have somebody new that's specifically coming aboard to be part of our church that we are going to be training specifically for the next two years with the long-term goal of planting him to plant a church. So planting him in another city, and we are praying that God would actually call some of us to leave this church and to go with him to plant this church. So I'm going to invite Jeremiah to come on up right now. Uh, Everyone, this is Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is uh, our first identified. We believe this guy has some of the raw skills and abilities to be a church planter. And our prayer is that God would plant him and his fiancee, Catherine, in Brampton in a couple of years to specifically reach the South Asian community that are moving there from all across the world. And that is Jeremiah's heart. That is Catherine's heart. And so this is Jeremiah, and he's going to be a huge part of our church over the next couple of years as we are praying that God would do something very specific in the city of Brampton and that that might be able to be an arm of our church as we send and as we begin to send church planters because we want to be a church that doesn't just grow this to enormous numbers. We want to be a church that is very specific about we're going to be a church planting church. Healthy churches plant churches. 
And so we want to be a church planting church. And so this is Jeremiah, and you'll get to know him a lot better over the next couple of years. He's going to be doing a lot of observing over the next couple of months, uh, but then he'll be getting a little bit more engaged at kind of every level. So uh, we've also been praying for Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah's father suddenly passed away at the beginning of August. Um, And so we've been praying for Jeremiah. And so this is a bit of an interesting time, both between getting engaged and uh, the loss of his dad. So we are so thankful that Jeremiah is here with us today. And I'm just going to pray for Jeremiah. Please introduce yourself to him. You probably can't miss him. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for Jeremiah. He is loved. We love him. God, he is a brother. And so God, as we have blood connection brothers, he is our brother through the blood of you, Jesus. So that means that uh, the way that we treat our own brothers, we want to treat him. And so we lift him up in prayer and we mourn the loss of his father with him. God, we pray that you would give him uh, an incredible amount of strength in these days. For him and Catherine, as they celebrate this exciting journey of being engaged and getting married in the spring, this is awesome, but God, it's also difficult. So God, we pray that you would surround them with your love and encouragement, give them strength. May they know that they are loved and that they have a family here that wants to deeply care for them. And Holy Spirit, come, fill him. May he know of your, your presence today, especially. God, we pray for what you're going to do in Brampton. We're excited for what you're going to do. We pray for the people that are not even moved here yet, that will come there. May you begin to prepare their hearts for the good news of you. And God, we pray that we would see hundreds and hundreds of people come to know you, Jesus, through the church that is going to be planted in Brampton. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Well, uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Our uh, Frontlines team is very happy to bring you one. It's really important that we have physical Bibles in front of us. Uh, I'm I'm sure that you have your phone. You can certainly find one on your phone, but sometimes you receive a text message, and then you go to your text message before you're going to go to what the Scripture is. So if you want a physical Bible, and actually, if you do not have a physical Bible, if you just don't have one, take this one home with you. You're not stealing it. You can just have it, okay? It's our gift to you. Well, I'm extremely excited because every fall, as it relates to the churches that I've been a part of at least over the last couple of years, and specifically now this one, we're going to do what we call our vision series. And the vision series is the purpose is this, to remind you and I of what the purpose of the church is, and more specifically, our local church here, Church of the City. Because here's the thing, and I think this applies to everybody here today, regardless of where you're coming from. For some of you, you're like, Dude, I got, just got totally tricked into being here today. I did not know, I did not know that this was going to be a church service. Like, what is this? So for you, it's like, hopefully there's been something already that you're like, hey, this is kind of different. Um, our desire is for you to understand who the church is, what the church is all about. Then for those of us that have maybe, you know, we've kind of been part of the church before, we're a little bit confused as we look around at different churches. Uh, maybe you sense that there's a spirituality about the world, but you're not really sure what the church has to do with that. Then this is going to be helpful for you. Then there's those of you that have been really hurt by the church, and so you're here today, and you already got a wall up where it's like, if I experience what I experienced before, I'm done. And I'm not just done with the church, I'm done with God. And then there's going to be those of you that are part of the church, and you're like, yeah, like, I've been here for a long time. This is kind of neat, like this whole church thing. And you forget what this is really all about. And let's be honest, a lot of people forget what the church is and who the church is called and supposed to be. And guaranteed, and why I know that is because of that, that second group of people that I talked about that have been hurt by all of us. So here's the purpose. 
figure out who we are, figure out what we're going to do, and figure out how and are we actually going to do that. Because we live in a world, and I hope you see this, but we live in a world where people are turning to everything and anything to receive meaning, purpose, identity, and hope. And the Christian message is, I'm sorry, world, but there's only one place where you can find ultimate hope, ultimate purpose, ultimate identity, and ultimate restoration. So, welcome to Church of the City. Buckle up. We're going to have some fun together. Mark 3. Let's start in verses 21, 20 to 21. Read this. Then he went home and the crowd again so that they could not even eat. Now, always beneath the text of the scriptures, there's a hermeneutic. There's an understanding that we need to apply to what is actually going on here. And what Mark is telling us in this literary structure and in this text is that Jesus has returned to his home. Now, I have a picture here for us. It's a map uh, of the geographical area where Jesus is. So Jesus here is in Capernaum. We understand as we study the Gospel of Mark that Jesus actually considered his home that he would return to and kind of uh, go there. And the purpose of him going there, we believe, is that he's actually, he's been in the field. He's now going home probably to get a little bit of rest and relaxation. So Jesus goes home to Capernaum. This is kind of his home base. This is the region of Galilee where he did the majority of his Ministry. We read, he goes home, and it tells us that a crowd gathered so that he could not even eat. What Mark is telling us is Jesus goes home to get a little bit of R&R, or rest and relaxation, and a crowd shows up, and he includes the detail that he could not even eat to show that people show up, and Jesus can't even eat because so many people are coming to him. At this point, Jesus is growing in popularity, and not necessarily good popularity, as we see in the next verse. Verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, Jesus' family lives in Nazareth. So maybe you can see where Nazareth is. That's Nazareth. And they've got to travel to Capernaum. The distance is about 64 kilometers, and they don't have minivans. And so they are taking a journey. They find out Jesus is returning to Capernaum. Uh, News is spreading, not by Twitter, but by word of mouth, that Jesus has returned home and a crowd is gathering. And they return, as it tells us, to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. The actual translation is that he is insane. People think he is crazy. And as you look at the first, actually, chapters of Mark, you actually begin to understand that people do think he's out of his mind. I mean, he's teaching with authority. He's casting demons out of people. He's healing people. And everybody in the region is going, this is nuts. Who is this guy? And so his family is starting to get the idea that if we don't bring him back home, he's going to make a bad name for us. Like, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Like, he's, he's my brother. And he's, he's my son. Does he realize what he's doing to the family name? He's out of his mind. You see, all of, some of us have like this understanding of Jesus where it's like, Jesus was like, just like cuddly like a cat. You know, Jesus, Jesus is, he's got nice flow. You know, he's got a nice beard. People thought Jesus was insane. It's why he was killed on the cross. People thought he was insane. And not only that, I, I, you need to be encouraged if you're a follower of Jesus and your family thinks you're a bit insane. Because following Jesus brings a bit of insanity to you. 
You're willing to do things for people that the general population isn't willing to do. <laughs> you come here on Sundays when you could be doing other things. Following Jesus is a bit insane. It's subversive. And this is subversive Jesus that we're being introduced to. Jump down to verse 31. Now, this is a, a literary technique called a Markin sandwich. Mark starts in verse 20 to 21, telling us that his family is coming. He then gives another bulk of teaching. And then he jumps down to verse 31 to 35 to finish off what he's going to make his point about the first couple verses. It's called a Markin sandwich. It's a literary structure to help the book of Mark flow. Very, very interesting. Especially if you're nerdy that way like me. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So they're not even going to come inside. Now, Capernaum, as we understand, we study a bit of the history. It's a, it's a village of about 1,500 people, a small fishing village. Earlier in Mark, we actually see that it says that the entire village showed up at this house to learn and to, to be taught by Jesus because he was healing people. So we probably understand that this group of 1,500, we actually read before that Pharisees have actually come, which means that they've traveled from Jerusalem to Jesus. So this is a happening place. And Jesus' family shows up, and the word is that they call into him to say, pass the word on. Maybe he'll co- leave quietly, as if that's going to happen. He'll leave quietly, and then we'll, we'll get on again. Like, we'll, we'll keep going. We'll, we'll make sure that he's not going to continue to do all this bizarre stuff. Verse 32, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Essentially, uh, your family's outside. They want to talk. Uh, Maybe take a little break. Go see them. Jesus is about to do something crazy. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, someone sitting there would go, uh, the people outside, Jesus. We think you're smarter than that. They're the people outside. That's what he says. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. Now, culturally, this is radical in a traditional patriarchal culture where blood is seen as thicker than water or any other substance. It was normal for children to live close to their parents, maybe even in the same house. The family unit was also often the business unit. If you had a business, you would also to also have your family a part of that. Loyalty to the family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty to Israel as a people of God. So Jesus was a Jew born into a Jewish family. So also part of his lineage that way would be not only uh, a commitment to his local family, but also to the, the larger body of the Jewish people. And lastly, one's personal identity was basically the member of a group. One's family was one's life. And the words family and life are actually used interchangeably in the Old Testament. So this is what is going on. Jesus teaching people, a bunch of folks show up. He's teaching them, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. Jesus likely knows what's going on. Okay, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus and everyone else here. Let me redefine it for a second. Whoever does the will of God. Now, what is he talking about when he says the will of God? 
The will of God, as we understand, as we interpret the scriptures, you know that in the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's pursuing God's desires over man's desires or human's desires. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, and this is, this is, you have to understand this. Jesus's vision for new community is where spiritual kinship and not physical relationship is the fundamental basis for family. Jesus's vision for new community is where spiritual kinship and not physical relationship is the fundamental basis for family. If this doesn't shock you, it should shock you. If you don't think this is radical in this traditional patriarchal culture, then you're not understanding the culture. This is like saying, see you later, I don't want to be associated with you anymore. In a culture that was built around family, tradition, honoring father and mother, what do you mean, Jesus, that the new family is your, all these people? Now, what's interesting is you kind of follow this out from Jesus' teaching and then leaning into the New Testament church is you see that the New Testament church relates to one another as a family. They saw each other as brothers and sisters. And the rest of the scriptures is actually going to back this up in what it means to follow Jesus and who are brothers and sisters. Let's look at a few of these verses. John 1, verses 12 to 13. The writer John commenting about Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what is John telling us? Who are the brothers and sisters? It's those who receive Jesus as their salvation. So this is defining for us, and this is important, that there are those that are not technically your brothers and sisters— But there are those that are. And who are those that are? Those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Next verse, Galatians 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So once again, the idea of family is being backed up by the other writers of the New Testament to say that those people that turn to Jesus as their place where they find their meaning, purpose, and identity, those people come into the family of God, are now adopted as God's kids. And then lastly, 1 John 3 verse 1 says, Behold the greatness of God's love for us, that we should be called children of God. I remember when I was in Peru a number of years ago, and there were some missionaries there that we, were, we had gotten to know. And they were from a denomination where they, they literally called one another before their name, brother or sister. So we, we, I was taking a group of youth down, and they thought it was ridiculous that we would call— like, that, that, so they actually started joking with one another because these missionaries would relate, oh, hello, brother, brother Jim, hello, sister Sue, oh, it's good to see you. It would be like me walking up to you and going, hello, brother Scott. 
It'd be like me walking up to you and saying your gender and then your name. The youth thought it was ridiculous. So we actually, they all started joking with one another that, hey, brother, hey, sister. But this is what the scriptures tell us about how we actually now relate to one another, given what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are welcomed into the family of God with God the Father as our Father and Jesus the Son as our older brother. Therefore, the primary family for a follower of Jesus is the spiritual family. And as Jesus followers, this is our new reality. Now, some of you might be like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard this one before. Do you understand how enormous this is? That Jesus' vision for new communities where spiritual kinship and not physical relationship is the primary basis for family. I'm, I'm, if you've had a history in the church, you've maybe been part of a church before, and people are like, yo, uh, we're a family. You know immediately, maybe after a few Sundays, if they actually mean what they say. They talk about being a family, but they're not a family. And what happens in the Christian community is that we actually live at some arm's length with one another where we're like, you're kind, okay, you're spiritually like, yeah, the Jesus thing, you're my brother, you're my sister, but, you know, I wouldn't actually sacrifice enormous parts of my life for you the way that I would sacrifice for one of my kids, my actual kids. Like, we put limitations on how we'd actually care for one another. Why? Because we're not actually physical family. This says that your primary way of thinking about yourself as a church and as we love one another is on the basis that this is the primary relationship and that you are the new family. So that when people come in contact with the church, that they realize, wow, these people are more than just good friends. These people are more than just acquaintances. These people treat each other as their brothers and sisters. If that's the church you want to be a part of, we're trying to go for that. Is that if that's not the church you want to be part of, then go find another one. And I'm not saying all these other churches aren't trying to do that. But we're specifically saying and targeting with everything that we are, what would it look like for Church of the City to feel like a family? Because we're brothers and sisters. Now, you might be saying, okay, I want to be a part of a church that calls itself a family. But if I'm honest, I don't really want to do all the real family stuff. Like, what are you saying I have to do? Well, think about what it means to be part of your own family. A lot of families have traditions. So we encourage traditions in our missional communities. A lot of families have weekly dinners together. So we encourage weekly dinners. A lot of families call each other out on stuff. So we call each other out in community groups. Why? Because we're a family. We're not a group that just gets together once a week and kind of knows each other. That's not church, people. And I'm, and I'm willing to back that up with the scriptures. And look what Jesus just said here. The church is not just a simple get-together once a week. And if that's why Jesus died, he wouldn't have done it. But we're convinced that, no, the church is just that one time a week, you know. I was talking to Rolly and Willie last week, and, and Rolly was asked by someone at one point, oh, will we see a Sunday? And he said, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> it's a priority for me to gather with my family. And then my missional community. 
This is what the church is. Yet we forget it, don't we? Now, we have to have another discussion. Because sometimes in church, we have things that we call the end, which should not actually be the end. And what I mean by that is a discussion about the means and the end. So I want to show you a slide, okay? And this is going to be the false paradigm. And you're probably going to look at this, and you're going to go, that seems totally legit. Like, that seems like what we should be doing. But then I'll show you the next slide, and you'll be like, oh, that's what he means. So let's see the slide that I want to see first. The next one, false paradigm. So we believe that what we're to do is based upon who God is and what God has done. Okay? Does that make sense? Our identity is based upon who God is, what God has done for us, which then helps us understand who we are to be. So who God is? God's a father. Did you know that? God's a father. God's not just a father to Jesus. God's a father to you when you trust in him. And what God then does is he adopts you as, your, as his child. So then who are we? We're the family of God. Right? We are the family. Now here's what happens. This is why I talk about the means and then the end. The end for a lot of people is that we would feel like a family. Right? So earlier I said that, you know, some people go into churches, it doesn't feel like a family. Well, here's the reality. The byproduct of you coming to know Jesus is that you are family. It's not an option. It does not the end, though. I like this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Think about that, for example. Sometimes we're like, the perfect church would be like this. And then you're like, we're going for that. Or the perfect church would have a lot of like really good missional communities. In the missional community, we've got to be family first before we start sharing the love of Jesus with people. That's not, the, that's not how Jesus did it, folks. Jesus sent out the disciples before they even confessed him as Lord and Savior. He said, here, I'm going to give you some empowerment. Now go share with people. Heal people. Cast the demons out. Well, Jesus. But sometimes we're like, no, we have to be perfect, and only then can we go show people who Jesus is. So think about that, for example, because then you're going to go and you're going to find people, and you're going to say, come to my perfect community. And they're going, but I'm not perfect. Why would we want to be part of your perfect community? And you'll probably not actually pursue people because you don't want them to disrupt the community that you believe that you're actually creating. So why would I invite you in if we feel like we have to be perfect? So what does Bonhoeffer say? But the person who loves those around them will actually create community. That in loving one another, we actually create community. So you want to see the real true paradigm? Of course. Come on. Let's do it. So there's a lot more here. So who God is? God's our Father. What God has done? He's adopted us as His children. Who are we then? We're the family. But then what are we to do? Well, we eat, pray, and we share life together. But what's the ultimate goal? In Guelph as it is in heaven, transformation by the gospel of Jesus. That's the end. And so when we look at the means, the means is that in this section in time in history, believe that missional communities is a way for us to be the family of God, to eat, pray, and share life together, and that a reunion on Sunday mornings is also the way. But if you go to other parts of the world where there it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus, it's not like, well, they can't do missional communities and they can't gather, so I guess they can't be a church. No, they figure out what other means that they can be to be the family of God. So ultimately, what's the goal? That people are transformed by the gospel of Jesus and come to know him. 
The goal isn't to solely land on family. The, the goal is that we are a family who then goes and reaches people for Jesus. It's who we are. It's not what we're going for. Some of you are like, wow, like I never heard this before. Good, welcome. We want you to know about it. Because this is what it means to be God's kids. So let's get a little bit more practical. What does it mean and how do we apply being a family? Well, number one, some families, some people define their family as people that they're blood connected to. Now that isn't always the case. There are people that are adopted into families and they're every much a family as other people. But one of the traits at times is someone being a family. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a good one. It just means that you have a relational connection. But get this, we are all connected by the blood of Jesus. That in Jesus' death, that he died for all of us, and so therefore it's the way that we are connected by blood. So you might be like, yeah, like, I only really care for the people that I'm connected by blood with. Well, you're connected by blood with the other followers of Jesus. Number two, we are heirs in the kingdom of God. You know, when my parents pass away, I'm going to get their stuff, right? Do you realize what you get because of you're now a kid of God? You get the family. You get eternity forever with Jesus. You get this land restored. Amazing. We then also, we redefine sacrifice based on the example of our father and our brother. You know, some people live at arm's length length around sacrifice. Well, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll only get together with you if it fits within my schedule. And I'll only give you a little bit of money because, well, I still need some money for the other things that I want. So I hope you're okay with that. But that's the way I'm going to relate to you. In a family, friends, you sacrifice. Now, that's our definition of sacrifice. But let's look at what Jesus did for us. He gave his life. God sent his son to die for you and me. Let's think about this, for example. I don't think I'd give Nixon up for all of you. Now, I have Cade, right? So I have a second son. But even then, I'm not like, you know what? I'll do away with Nixon. There are all these sinful people because I still have Cade. And you'd probably be like, no, don't give up Nixon for me. But when we talk about the sacrifice of God sending his only son to die on the cross for us, like, no big deal. Are you kidding me? That is a sacrifice. Let's feel the weight of that for a second. We redefine sacrifice based on what God has shown us as a father and what Jesus the son has done for us. Next part is that we're we're comfortable with one another. Now there's also the part where we go against comfort but families, I, I travel around to our missional communities and do a little bit of training. And one of our missional communities at one point, someone's like, well, when I'm at my family's place, I just go like, and I open up the fridge and like, what's here? It's mine. And they're like, so if I'm comfortable in my missional community, does that mean I'll just go up to the fridge and like, hey, you got some chocolate milk. I want that chocolate milk. <laughs> my goal with our missional communities is that's how comfortable we get with each other. Our goal is that in our missional communities that it's like, man, I'm having it. My kids are driving me nuts. Like if Nixon says no one more time, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. But he just, like, I sometimes need to say, hey guys, I need to tap out for a second. Would you love on my kids so I can just like sit here in this chair and look at the sky? (laughs) Our desire is that our missional communities would be places where you can tap out. 
If this is truly a village, if this is truly a family, then they're really all of our kids that we're raising together. It's not like, well, what are they going to think if I like maybe even discipline their kid? Well, there's probably methods and ways that you should maybe lean into that slowly. But what would it look like? Could I say to the people in my national community, you know what? You got to take Nixon over there and have a time out with him. Because he needs to see multiple people joining in on that. Next, we are in a never-ending covenant with one another. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39 says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What this means is that we're connected to the love of the Father, but also we're connected by that love to one another. And nothing can separate us. It's forever. You know, there's some talk in this uh, psychological world and people that study anthropology. And they're actually, and I actually sometimes say this at weddings. So you have to imagine it's not really like super romantic. But I actually say that some people are thinking that in a few years, marriages could actually become contractual where, you know, we might be able to renew this marriage after five years. But we'll say we're married for five. Maybe you choose a 10-year installment, maybe 15-year, super romantic. And then at the end of that five, you say, do we want to keep this thing going? Because people are saying it's an enormous amount of money to have a divorce. So what if you just built it into your marriage contract that, uh, well, let's just re-look at this in a few years. Super, super romantic marriage. But many people are saying this is super practical. When you are part of the family of God, it is never ending no matter what you do. You've been saved by grace. Therefore, there was nothing you could do to earn it in the first place. Therefore, you can't look down on other people either because you've been saved by the same grace that they've been saved by. So you treat them as your brothers and sisters. Next thing is that we are dependent on Christ and one another. I want to be dependent on the people in my church. I don't want to say like, oh man, I'm doing this alone. Like I need people. We're dependent on Christ first and then one another second. Nextly, we we have compassion for one another. Why? Because we understand the grace that we've been extended. So we're compassionate. We read so often in the Gospels that Jesus looked on people with compassion. His heart broke for people. Does your heart break for the other people within? Like, does your heart break for Jeremiah? Or you're just like, man, tough situation. Do you have compassion? Because if he's our brother then our heart breaks with him. And then lastly, we understand the importance of communicating truth and grace. So we read that Jesus came in truth and grace, and a lot of people, like, they like to do the two paradigms. And I've talked about this before, but some people are like, oh, there's the grace side over here, which is like, dude, don't even worry about it. You sinned, not a big deal. Christ saved you, don't even worry about it. Heck, if you do it again, not a big deal. The other side, people, they go, you did that? You're a terrible human being. I'm never hanging out with you again. You see, we think of it in two paradigms, but let's think about this. Is it actually grace if you dismiss the truth? Think about it. Is it actually grace if you dismiss truth? No, it's not. But it changes the way you talk to somebody. And is actually good truth if you don't expose grace? See, here's what's happening, folks. I get told a lot, you just tell a lot of truth. 
And I'm like, okay, so you're putting me in that side of the camp. Okay, I get that. But you know what? Honestly, and I know I'm a little bit defending myself a little bit this. And I have to watch the way I talk to people. But I think it's because a lot of people don't talk about truth at all anymore. So when someone stands up and says, hey guys, uh, you know, there's a lot of ideas out there, but the scriptures tell us that we're to challenge all of these ideas, put them up to the fire of logic and reason, and actually see if it's legit or not. So suddenly when someone says, hey guys, this is the way it is, everyone goes, whoa, that guy. Do you hear him? I'm not coming. He's offending me. The gospel offends people. But it's also the greatest news in the world because it means nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, the question, if this is what the family of God looks like, what's holding you back in your heart? You're maybe like, yo, like, oh man, I like the way my life is, I got my priorities. What he's talking about, my priorities are going to have to change. Maybe it's the power, the status you feel like you have in life. You know, I felt really comfortable giving away my used clothes to the poor, but I was never actually willing to hang out with the poor. If they're followers of Jesus, they're my brothers and sisters too. Maybe it's, well, what about approval? Like people might not approve of me. I want to read you this morning an excerpt from this incredible book that I just finished. I highly recommend it. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And in this book, uh, a fellow who grew up in a Muslim household comes to Christ. And when he comes to Christ, he begins to realize what this might mean for the relationship with the people that are in his family. And I want to read you a section. It says this, My heart sank. I had not even acknowledged Jesus to Jesus, let alone to others, but to acknowledge him meant destroying my family. Could he really charge me to do such a thing? As if the living word of the Bible were in conversation with me, Jesus began responding to my heart verse by verse. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. But how could this be? How could Jesus turn me against Ami and Abba? This is what he calls his parents. They are such wonderful people. Why would God do such a thing? Jesus answered in the next verse, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their sons or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It was not that Jesus was turning me against my parents. It was that if my family stood against God, I had to choose one or the other. God is obviously best, even if that caused me to turn against my family. But how? How could I bear this pain? He assured me that the inconceivable pain and social rejection is part of the Christian walk. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. To be a Christian means suffering real pain for the sake of God. Not as a Muslim would suffer for God, because Allah so commands him by fiat, but as the heartfelt expression of a grateful child whose God first suffered for him. But Lord, I pleaded... Acknowledging my faith in you will mean the end of my life. If I don't die a physical death through emotional torment or at the hands of some misguided Muslim zealot, at least my entire life as I know it will come to an end. Nabil, my child, I felt him say, whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I had to give up my life in order to receive his life. This was not some platitude or cliche. The gospel was calling me to die. 
as you continue to read the book, you, you read about the conversation that he had with his parents and it broke them. And to this day, Nabil does not have a close relationship any longer with his parents. Why? Because Jesus is enough. So friends, is Jesus enough for you? There's this painter, the Dutch painter by the name of Rembrandt. And in the 1600s, he painted a painting that I'm going to show you on the screen now. It's a painting that he depicted of the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, the story goes that there's a father who has two sons, and one of the sons at the beginning of the story says, Dad, I want my inheritance. And the dad says, okay. And in that culture, it means likely the father has to sell off half of what it is because he's not dead yet. And he gives the inheritance to the son. And the son goes off, and we read that he squandered his wealth in partying and debauchery, and eventually there's a famine in the land. And the famine causes him to then lose more money. And then he's sitting in a farmer's pig's trough and eating the food of the pigs. And he says, well, why don't I go home? Because, well, at least the servants in my father's house have things to eat. So he goes home. And we read in the story that as he approaches the house, his father, for whatever reason, is outside. Maybe he's been looking for him. And he sees the son, and he begins running towards him. Now, for an old man in that culture to do this, it was not culturally practiced. And he runs to his son with open arms, and he brings him in, and he kisses him, and he loves on him. Then the story transitions to the second son who's out in the field, and he begins to hear this party because the father's like, we're going to celebrate. My son's home. And the older son in the field is like, how dare my father throw this kid a party? Do he, does he realize the pain that he's caused my father? Does he realize what he has done? You see, his, his thing that's holding him back from the good news of the gospel is religion. That what I do, if I only do more, then the father will love me more. And the father comes out and says, son, in many ways, get your head out of the sand. Do you not realize that everything around you, all that I have is yours? You see, the older brother was, was a staunchy, difficult hypocrite. The younger son was the, the running away rebel. And so Rembrandt, in his response to this story, paints this. And you see in the left, this is the, the younger son who's in the complete embrace of the father. And then the older brother is standing off to the side. Well, maybe you don't realize, and we're going to go to the next slide is that Rembrandt actually paints himself into this painting. And he's the man who's kind of at middle level, just beside the older brother, taking in the grace that has been shown from the father to this son. Now the power of this story is to say, which son are you? But it's also to say, will you take the gift that the father offers? Will you accept the unconditional love that he gives to you? Would you come and would you be part of the family? And go to our last slide. Because we are sons and daughters of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ welcomes us in and frees us from legalism and then avoidance. We are welcomed into a love relationship. You see, God is the Father who welcomes us in, and Jesus is the big brother who does not stand off to the side in judgment, but comes to us and dies on our behalf.
Jesus is not the older brother that stayed in the field. Jesus is the older brother that goes and dies. Because we need a family. We need a father. You see, this world is desperate, as I talked about at the beginning, for hope and meaning and purpose because there's this, there's this hole inside of them for a father. And they're trying to fill it. If we are made by God, if we are made in his image, then the only thing that will fill that hole is God. And then you begin deciding, well, which religion tells the truth of who this God is? And Christianity says, this is the God. That he didn't just stay up in heaven and look on our terrible situation, but he said, I'm going to change the course of humanity so that they can come back to me and we can be a family. And then once they understand what I've done for them, they're going to want to tell other people. And that might mean some people will be like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But for others, it might mean, I want this family. I, I not only, like God is not only our savior, but he's also our king. And that's good news. Like following Jesus is actually a good way of living. It's hard. Nabil Qureshi was just diagnosed two weeks ago with stomach cancer. And it's a difficult situation, not only because he has stomach cancer, and the prognosis is that 4% make it to five years with what he has. But he is praying right now, like, Muslims are saying, it's because you converted to Christianity that you have cancer. And he's returned back to know, God is a loving father who sent his son to die for me. And if he could do that, then whatever happens, he's enough because I'll spend eternity with him. And life with him is void of pain, ultimately. Today we're going to be taking communion. It's a great day to take communion. And communion is an opportunity for not only us, for us to do a bit of self-reflection, but also for us to say, thank the Lord that I am now welcomed into a family. You see, you can go and you can look at all the religions of the world and they'll tell you, do this, 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 and this, and only then will that God forgive you and love you. Christianity says, there's nothing that you could do to earn his forgiveness, and so he stepped in and made a way for you. So when we take communion, we celebrate that. We rejoice in that. And as I said earlier, I would have a hard time giving my son for you. But now let's transition that. Christ gave, God gave, the Father gave his son for you so that you could live eternally with him. So here's what I want to invite you to do. You may be that person that's on the far side of saying, I didn't even know this was church. <laughs> How dare they invite me? <laughs> and maybe the Holy, Holy Spirit is now doing a work on your heart where you're like, wow, like if this guy is telling any bit of truth, that's probably pretty important. Maybe you're in that next category, you're like, you've been really hurt by the church. We are sorry that you were hurt by the church. And I'm not going to pretend like, no, we're not those kinds of churches because we are broken people as well. And if you're part of this thing, I'll be honest, my family, my, my, my family here on this earth, this, this earth, they've hurt me. 
you're probably going to be hurt by one of us at some point because we're imperfect. But we're also, we have a desire to be different because of what Christ has done for us. Then maybe you're in that next group and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're like, I've never considered the church my real family. Friends, you've had no choice. This is what it's all about. They were the family of God. It's your new identity. And then maybe today you just need the reminder, like, wow, this is what Christ has done for me. You see, the gospel is not just good news to those who have never heard it before. It's good news for those of us who are already followers of Jesus to be reminded why we're following in the first place. Because the only thing that's going to lead us to sacrificially give of ourselves if we look at a level of sacrifice that's far more than we could ever do. And that's Jesus. So if you've never followed Jesus before, I want to invite you to make that step to say, I want to turn from the way that I've been living and I want to commit to this Jesus because he sounds crazy. And I want to be part of a church where they're actually trying to be a real family. I know they're going to hurt me, but we're all broken people. You know, they could go to Boston Pizza and they could hurt you. But it doesn't keep you from going back to Boston Pizza because you love their dry ribs, right, Nick Carney? And so this is that. It's like there might be times where we're difficult, but we need to be reminded of Christ. So that's what this is about. So no matter where you are, turn to Jesus. You know that sounds kind of cliche, but what I mean is when people stand and they raise their hands in worship, it's not because they're ultra charismatic. It's because they're saying, God, I need to surrender. Like when we were singing all hail, Redeemer, hail, for you have died for me. I need to remind it of that this morning. Don't you? So as we take communion, what you're going to do is you're going to get up out of your seats. You're going to shimmy out of your aisle. And you're going to go to one of one, two, three, four of our folks standing here. And you take a little piece of bread, you dip it in the juice, and you eat it right there, okay? So here it is. I'm not coming back to do it with you communally. You're going to do it individually. And as you do it, realize the gift of what this symbolizes, that God saw fit to separate himself from his son for you, a separation that had never happened in all of existence before that. So that you and I could be welcomed into this family and that we could call each other brothers and sisters and have an older brother that's always got our back. Let's pray. Jesus, may this be true to us today. Might we declare it. Might we know that we are loved by you and that we are family. God, I'm tired of just pretending with one another. Might we be real with each other. Show us what this means. Help us understand. Grow our minds, God. I pray, Lord, that there is anybody in this room that's never heard this good news before. May they hold fast to it. And might you change their life as you change the life of Nabil from being a devout Muslim to being a full-fledged, devout follower of Jesus. And might you do this work in our city. So God, we pray in Guelph as it is in heaven. Amen.